Welcome to Inside Ulster, the rugby podcast from the Bell Tale, with me, Neve Campbell, me, Jonathan Bradley, and me, Adam McKendrick. With expert analysis and special guests, let's kick off. Hello and welcome back to Inside Ulster. My name is Neve Campbell and as ever, I am joined by our Belfast Telegraph rugby correspondent, Jonathan Bradley, and our sports reporter, Adam McKendry. There's lots to get through, discuss and analyse this week, as Andy Farrell's men are keeping their Grand Slam bid on course with a hard-fought win in Rome on Saturday. The visiting side's winning streak ambitions remain intact, but this was probably their most uncomfortable visit to Rome since their defeat there in 2013. Last week, the Belfast Telegraph, through Jonathan, also exclusively reported that Ulster are considering implementing an artificial pitch at Ravenhill in what would be the biggest change to the ground since the 2014 redevelopment. And Toulouse are rumoured to be interested in signing current Ulster skipper Ian Henderson, who was away on Ireland duty on Saturday whilst his club secured a stunning bonus point victory over the Sharks in Durban, which is what we're going to start off with. Uh, Johnny, this is the game that had been rescheduled after an October stomach bug essentially wiped Ulster out. A much changed, changed lineup and a bad run of losses lately. It was a great one win, but sorry, was, was it unexpected, would you say, or is that really harsh? <laughs> No, I think we talked about it last week. Like the, uh, you know, the bookies had Ulster at nine and a half points underdogs, so that's pretty sizable. <laughs> and um, that was before the teams were announced. And again, what do I know? But you're looking at the team and you're thinking that's uh, one of the more, I suppose, left field team selections that you would have seen this season. Experimental. I think. Yeah, yeah, one of the more <laughs> experimental uh, teams that you would have seen this season, and. After we were recording, it sort of became apparent in sort of dribs and drabs who had uh, who had been left behind. You know, James Hume, Nathan Doak, Billy Burns, um, all left in Belfast. Which I suppose the knock-on effect of that was that you didn't see Stuart Moore on the wing like we maybe expected that you would have seen. You know, you had um, Aaron Sexton coming back in for his first game in a long time. Uh, Craig Gilroy starting his first game for a long time, and. The flip side of that was, I suppose, we didn't expect Rory Sutherland to be available for the game either. And then he uh, hit a really good game. I thought, well, the forwards in general had a really good game. Um, but it's an unexpected win and I think a real bonus coupled with the fact that um, Glasgow then lost as well because it sort of just goes to show, you know, last week we were saying how big the points swing had been with Glasgow beating Ulster. And then... I don't think it would have surprised anyone if Ulster had have lost on Saturday and Glasgow had have won. And then all of a sudden, you know, Glasgow could be ahead of Ulster, whereas now there's a buffer. You're looking at the thing, you know, you're looking at the table and it really feels like third place is now totally in Ulster's hands and barring a slip up at home in those three final home games, looking at the table what you're really saying is the pressure is on the other teams to be perfect from here on out and I don't think they are. Would you say then that's like this is going to go down as probably one of Ulster's best victories this this season, Adam? Yeah, I would say so. And I think especially after you saw the team, I was sort of speculating that they almost put their eggs in the basket of we're going to try and win the Glasgow and the Cardiff games and this is the game where as as we saw what happened at the weekend, if you get something from this game, 
it's a bonus. So, like, looking in hindsight, whenever the team was announced, I think I was kind of as shocked as anybody else because of the number of changes. We expected there to be changes after the, the Glasgow game and how poorly they played, but to make such sweeping changes, I think, was quite a surprise. So, for them to go over with such a changed team, I imagine with the mindset of, lads let's just give this a lash and see how it goes maybe not quite that cavalier but whenever you make that many changes for a game like that against a very talented shark side you very much are sort of saying to the guys we're not expected to do anything here let's go and prove them wrong and I think in all those contexts yeah I would say that's probably Ulster's probably Ulster's best win of the season yeah, it's, it's their most impressive win of the season. Yeah. I think it's not their most necessary win of the season because mm-hmm. obviously that was the sale, the sale game at yeah. home. But I think in terms of what we expected to happen, in terms of the performance, the improvements in the performance from week to week, because you know we talked at length last week about how the mall didn't work mm. against Glasgow. The mall was back to firing against a big South African side which is very important. And then we also saw what I thought was encouraging as well was a return of some of that sort of interplay amongst the fours mm-hmm. that we talked about last week as being absent. You know, you had the the Alan O'Connor really soft hands pass inside for Harry Sheridan, who you haven't got his first try for Ulster the week before, got his second. Um, only eight days on with a mm-hmm. really, really good finish. Um very well timed because we did the big profile of him during the week. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's always nice when something like that happens rather than the the opposite, which is what normally happens. I think one of the things that we also saw was a bit of resiliency from this Ulster side where you know, they only flew in on Thursday whenever, if you were doing sort of the two weeks, uh, you would probably fly in a little bit earlier and actually spend the whole two weeks in South Africa. Whereas this time they really tried to limit how long they were there and ended up only spending, I, th- I think it was actually, they were only actually there two nights. So really short trip and you arrive and within a minute you're under your own sticks having conceded an early try. It's very easy with the team that you've sent over with a quick travel, the quick adaptation to South Africa, you can just sort of go, this isn't our day. But credit to them, they fought back. As Johnny says, the mall was on top form. I think Sheridan's been an absolute find. Like He's one of those guys who I think has really grabbed the bull by the horns and re- realised that he's been given a legitimate chance. And I think that's maybe where some of Ulster's other players have fallen down in the back row, which is that they've kind of seen themselves as part of this back row rotation. Whereas Sheridan looks like a guy who has been brought in and has realised that this is his opportunity to step up and earn a shirt before he's really even become a part of the squad. And yeah, I, know, I mean that's important to note. Like he is still in the academy. Yeah, he, you know, he doesn't have him. a professional deal. And then I know he was moved to the second row, and arguably he looked even better in the second row than he has in the back row so far. But he's come in. He's shown the kind of drive and desire that I think Ulster were missing, especially during December and January. And I would say probably has been that spark that they've really needed in that pack. And he's been so impressive. So. For me, yeah, this is a result that they really should be building on. And if that squad coming back from South Africa aren't able to sort of 
feed some of that confidence into the guys that were left back in Belfast, then I think if if you're able to do that, there's something special that you can do for the rest of the season. And it's amazing, you know, <laughs> one week on how differently we're talking about Ulster's season, but that's what one result like that can do. But I think part of it as well is the sort of, I was talking to James Hume about this the other day. It's like you can frame things however way you want, really, with statistics. So it's like coming into this one, Ulster had lost seven of their last ten. But if you in all competitions, but if you look at it now, you know, you can almost frame that in a, you know, they've won three out of four. And if you take it back to the La Rochelle game where they got a losing bonus point, they've actually got what would be considered credible returns on paper from five games in a row now because the La Rochelle losing bonus point, Glasgow losing bonus point. Teams don't tend to win there. So if you were to plot it out at the start of the season, those would be results that you would say are decent. Now, the Glasgow performance wasn't um, wasn't good and that fed into that sort of narrative. But in terms of looking at the team as having turned the corner, turned the corner gradually, I suppose, that's five games really in a row where the points return has been uh, completely satisfactory and I would put the Sharks five points as quite possibly four points ahead of where you would have expected them to be um, even in a sort of not ideal world but in a perfectly acceptable world. (laughs) I I think there is a little bit of a danger in looking at that way though and that you sort of become comfortable with credible returns when... In reality, for Ulster, if you look at those five games, they should have won in La Rochelle. They should have... Their performance against Glasgow was not good. The performance against Sale wasn't great. I think the Stormers game, they were better. So, as much as I do take his point that they are credible returns, and to... To no, sorry, extent, this, this, sorry, this was me saying this. I was just talking oh, sorry. About it. Well, as much as I take teams. your point that they are credible returns I'd maybe disagree a little bit with Glasgow I understand the form that they've been on and the fact that Leinster are the only team to have beaten them on that run of form but equally I until think Saturday. <laughs> until Saturday um, whenever you're sort of looking at where Ulster think they should be and want to be I know they haven't been this season but whenever you sort of think about the kind of team that Ulster want to be should you ever be going somewhere and thinking to yourself credible return as a point apart from maybe Leinster and maybe the Stormers at the moment uh, questionable I would I would rather look at it as the performances I think I would be happier with a performance where you give a 9 out of 10 performance and if the other team's 10 out of 10 then you just hold your hands up and you're beaten by the better team as opposed to a performance where you're maybe at 4 out of 10 and you squeeze a win that you really think you shouldn't have I understand that at different points in the season it differs because at points at points in the season you need points. Like if Ulster had a terrible performance in Durban and still got a bonus point win, I think at that point you're happier with the win because Ulster are in a position right now where they need points. Are we looking back at the La Rochelle game and thinking Ulster are happy with a point from that? Well, Pro- to use probably your, to probably use not. Your logic, it was a good performance, so they've had it, it, four. <laughs> Was it a good performance against La Rochelle? La Rochelle? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, we're relitigating here when we should be looking forward. To, you know, going back to a game <laughs> that was in January, in the middle of January. But yes, it was a good performance. Well, with only four games remaining now, and Johnny, you were saying three of them are coming at home at Ravenhill. 
they should be confident of going on to secure at least the home quarter final. What do you think? The you think there be much changes, or what are your predictions for Saturday's game against uh, Cardiff? I think we'll see a good number of changes because I think if you look at the tactics and the approach to the squad that went to uh, that went to Durban. Now they arrived back yesterday afternoon. Yesterday being Monday, um, so you're guessing off today probably have their sort of in what they would call the installation day on Wednesday where they're going through the meetings train properly Thursday and captains are on Friday so you're not getting an awful lot of time on the pitch but what you do have is a, the benefit of those guys that were here last week so the likes of James Hume Nathan Doak Billy Burns who were already focusing on Cardiff from this point last week really so you see those guys come in um, Eric O'Sullivan I think was in Durban but didn't feature um, and then you've obviously got Jacob Stockdale Kieran Treadwell and Rob Herring uh, released from Ireland camp so you know you could be looking at even just those guys that you have available you know there's six changes um, to your team to start with and then it's filtering those guys back in uh, the ones that have been in Durban, the ones that will be feeling the effects of the travel and playing in such tough conditions and stuff. So, yeah, I think we'll see a good number of changes. And then, you know, it's the last game of the block as well. So there's a two-week break thereafter before you go into those um, three league home games with the Leinster game uh, mixed in between. So I think to finish this block with two wins out of three from three away games would be a massive... Uh, I suppose it's too strong to say a massive turning point in the season before you really know how the, how the season finishes but um, a massive confidence boost going into what would then be considered the stretch run of the season um, really feeling that you've put that winter of poor results behind you Adam do you think that they're going to they're going to take this confidence into Saturday's game and and get get the win. Well, well a good, maybe a good performance and not a win, but <laughs> <laughs> a performance and a good one. Well, again, at this stage of the season, it's points that matter more than uh, more than performances, I guess. Uh, obviously, the ideal situation is having both. I think if you can't take confidence from that Sharks game, even for the guys who would have been watching it at home, I think there's an issue because given all we talked about last week and the situation that Ulster could have found themselves in, to now be in a position where realistically you should be looking up rather than down and you should be thinking about can we catch the Stormers? I'm not sure they will but they've now put themselves back in a position where that is a realistic prospect. I think if you're not sort of taking confidence into this week then either the coaches aren't doing the right job of geeing the players up or the players haven't grasped what, they, what they've actually done with this win in Durban. So I would imagine you will see even the guys who weren't involved on Saturday will have that little bit of a spring in their step. And the key now is to find a way to translate that into back-to-back performances. Because I don't think we've seen back-to-back good performances from Ulster since probably back in October, November, sort of back around then. And that's maybe the key of where Ulster need to find that extra level going into this week, which is that we've had isolated good performances like 
Stormers was a good performance. Sharks was a good performance. Johnny believes La Rochelle was a good performance, so we'll we'll throw that one into the mix. Um, I would I would say that's the that's the key. You know, finding a way to take that momentum from the Sharks game and translate that into a good start against Cardiff. Because let's be honest, Cardiff haven't been great shakes this season. None of the Welsh regions have been great shakes this season, apart from the Ospreys in Europe. So realistically, this is a game that you should be winning. Ulster have to go into the game with that mentality of we should be winning this game, so let's go do it. Keeping in the theme of victorious mentalities, Ireland had a win as well this weekend, keeping rugby fans on the island feeling tickety-boo. But it wasn't as emphatic, perhaps, as supporters or players would have liked it to be. Johnny, they were quite ill-disciplined at times, sort of kept letting Italy back into it. And if they do that against England or Scotland, who they have next, um, they'll probably be more punished for it, would you say? Yeah, I think defensively there were certainly issues. I thought we probably saw uh, the importance of Gary Ringrose to that Irish team. I don't think um, Aki defensively at least um, at 13 really worked. I understand that um, I suppose with Henshaw out and you know James Hume's not in the squad um, they probably felt that there weren't that many Options at thirteen, other than to go with Aggie once Gary Ringo was pulled out late. But was Jimmy O'Brien not a thirteen? Yeah, um, because I I was surprised as I was surprised Jimmy O'Brien didn't come on earlier. Well, as as extremely disappointed as I was that Stuart McCluskey was not starting that game and feel like he should have started that game. You are the Stuart McCluskey fan club, and <laughs> we love him. I, 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 I don't I don't think he deserved to be dropped for that game. I don't understand why. Sorry, I, I get why Andy Farrell wants to bring Aki back in because he likes Aki and he has served him well in the past. I don't think Stuart McCloskey deserved to be dropped for that game. And I think, uh, similar to what we've said in previous weeks, I think it sends the wrong message that he's the one that's dropped. But as much as I understand that, if you've picked Aki to start and Ringrose drops out, I think you bring Jimmy O'Brien into the starting lineup instead of McCluskey because you ended up in a situation where you had two inside centres playing in the centre and as a result, defensively, Ireland looked fragile in the midfield. Now, I agree with Johnny as well. I don't understand why O'Brien wasn't brought on earlier as a result. But for me, I, I think Farrell was trying to force both players onto the pitch at the same time when in reality, O'Brien should have been given the start from the off. Aki, he did give a very honest interview after before and he said like, you know, that they were a bit, um, given Farrell the rents of the gut and he, he said he, he holds his hands up too. Um, is that something, not as I suppose, it's a good position to be in to, to win and then be able to be so critical because that's what we have to do, I guess, in the podcast to hone in on on what can be fixed. Um, is that something that you think that they will be fine up against Scotland or, you know, do you think Aki's going to... Do you think it's going to be Aki or McCluskey against Scotland, basically? It's going to be interesting because I think Ringo's, by all accounts, should be back. The wrinkle to all of this is whether Robbie Henshaw's back as well. Um, Farrell has put guys in in the past without a lot of rugby. It's obviously pretty pronounced for Robbie Henshaw. His lack of minutes in this tag furlongs probably in that same boat. Um, 
whenever you're talking about him coming back in and, you know, we'll maybe get on to that with Finley Beelan being injured and what that means for Tom O'Toole. But it's going to be a big call. I don't think it's ideal. <laughs> um, maybe the centre make up in the squad at the minute and I think that's maybe something that's been highlighted by uh, what happened at the weekend I don't think we'll see Bondiagi and McCluskey together again you know that was the first time that we had seen it um, and just throughout this I was just sort of wondering not so much for the next two weeks obviously but just what it means for James Hume and I wonder does this open the door up for James Hume as a specialist 13 who is very good defensively. Um, just wondering if that may, if that weekend, even though he wasn't playing, maybe did his World Cup chances no harm. Um, as a specialist 13, we know that Henshaw can play both. Um, so I think that's going to be interesting over the next, well, beyond the Six Nations and into how the season finishes. Uh, if Hume can build on what have been a, a couple of encouraging performances for from him since uh, since the turn of the year after coming through that pretty horrendous injury. Um, it wouldn't surprise me, to be honest, if we see Henshaw and uh, Ringo's play against Scotland. You touched on it there as well. What what does um, Bielham being injured mean for Tom O'Toole? <laughs> I thought Tom O'Toole was really, really good. And... Whenever we were talking about how good he was against France off the bench, it wasn't like um, we weren't dampening Tom O'Toole's um, performance um, against France, but it was a performance that featured the kind of things that we know that Tom O'Toole can do well, and we know that he can, even at an international level, he can do well. So for him to come on as early as he did and to make the impact at the set piece that he made is really, really big for him, I think, because, you know, there were probably a few discussions around the fact that when the Six Nations started, you know, he wasn't um, Ulster's first choice for the biggest games because Marty Moore, more more often than not, was. He'd been injured sort of from that um, first sale game, so he'd missed time as well. And then, you know, obviously he was departing to go to Super Rugby, but... um, you were sort of thinking, you know, is John Ryan coming back to Munster? Is he going to get into the mix again as that third tight head? But Tom O'Toole, now it's not something that's going to get a huge amount of uh, column inches or anything like that in a wider sense, but Tom O'Toole has quietly been a big story in the Six Nations because we've talked about the depth and how Ireland have dealt with all these injuries that they've got. But you know, Furlong would have been seen as one of the irreplaceable players that couldn't get injured, and Ireland are three for three without him. Finley Beelham has filled in really, really well, and Tom O'Toole has played really, really well coming off the bench. So that's going to be a really interesting selection call because Tom O'Toole has played and played well, and Furlong hasn't played at all. Furlong is now back training. There's no other tight head called up to the squad yet. Now, there could be one added in the week after the provincial games. But at the minute for this training week, um, the open session that they've got in the Viva on Thursday, he's only got two tight heads. So, you know, you could theoretically see uh, Tom O'Toole Six Nations start with um, 
Tag Furlong coming off the bench and then presumably Tag Furlong starting against England in round five. But that is a prospect that Ireland, I think, will be much, much more confident in now than they would have been had we been having this conversation three weeks ago, four weeks ago. I think if the Six Nations has told Andy Farrell one thing, it's that his most important player is Jonathan Sexton and 100%. not Tag Furlong. And um, and that's that's not saying that Tag Furlong is no longer uh, an important player for him. He absolutely is. He definitely will improve Ireland whenever he comes back. But over the course of this championship, Ireland have learned that they are able to cope without Finlay Bealham. Or sorry, without, uh, they're able to cope because of Finlay Bealham and Tom O'Toole. We'll uh, get to see if they can cope without Finlay Bealham. We'll Tom, find out. Sorry, <laughs> uh, without Tag Furlong. But they are still in a position where they have not confidently discovered that they can play in a big game without Jonathan Sexton. Well, they have a wee break this week anyway now, so we'll be discussing the preview of their Scotland match, which is in Scotland, next Sunday at three o'clock. But Jonathan, in your column this week, you've given us a good wee bit of history to start off, um, just quoting what you wrote here. On the 12th of January next year, Ulster will celebrate 100 years of calling Ravenhill home. Almost a century ago, the Northern Province ran out victors over Leinster by a score of 14 to 6 on the same patch of grass where they have staged their games ever since. But when you reported last week, Johnny, that the organisation's top brass have been discussing the possibilities of replacing the traditional grass with an artificial surface, the reaction to the story was fierce. Uh, to, say, to say the least, is it a case of if and not when, Johnny? It's. I think the impression that I get is certainly that it's going to happen. The Whether it happens now or whether it happens in the future, I think it's going to happen. Um the window for it to happen now and the reason why it makes the most sense to happen now is because you get a longer break. Like Ulster's last home game of the season, say if they get a home quarter final, their last home game of the season would be in early May, mm-hmm. um, presuming they don't play the semi-final and final at home. And then that gives you... We don't have the ERC fixture dates, but that could give you four, theoretically five months to get it done. So you're ne- you're never going to have a longer summer break than you have in a World Cup year. That's just how it is. The season ends earlier and finishes later. So that's the reason why I think there's been an intense, you know, things have intensified on this front um, recently. And it's because because of that, the logistics of it, of being able to get, or theoretically being able to get it done. You know, we saw last year, or well, this season, but last summer when Connor put theirs and you know, they had to start the season with consecutive away games because the pitch wasn't ready. So that's why this is all coming to a head. But regardless of whether it happens now, regardless of whether, you know, the money's fine to get it in place, the... Um, contracts, so on and so forth, are worked out to get it done. Now, like, I think it will happen because I think the powers that be have decided that they want it to happen. Are you for it? Uh, not really, to be honest. Like, I mean, it doesn't really matter what we think. It's, it's more it's more what the players think, you know. The fans, if, the majority of the fans seem to be massively opposed. 
Yeah, and I understand that, but the the reality is the only thing that actually matters. You know, like if, if you went down to Ravenhill today and you saw uh the, you saw the pitch as it is, it's a nice green pitch. It in places. In places. <laughs> uh Johnny cutting to the point of what I was trying to make. There are times where it is really quite patchy out there. If you are given a pristine surface that you can play on 24-7, you can have an Ulster game at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, you can get the Ulster women out there at half past 3, you can get the Ulster under 20s or whatever out, out there at 6 o'clock. You, know, you, you can just roll teams on and off there. So you've essentially got a 24-7 facility. I understand floodlights and all that people are going to be adding me on twitter or something saying that's not a real point um but you know you know you know what i mean like that is now something that can be used for whenever you want without any fears over having the pitch cut up and it saves you having frozen pitches it saves you having all those issues did you have the, the lava shell jenga's been spurred on by the whole lava shell controversy no i think i think that it's it's um it's a good point and it's a really important point to make like this has been in the mind's eye of um, the top brass before this and it's about money like that's what it comes down to like um, it is good it's good for business basically Mm. yeah I mean my understanding of it is that they believe that there's a gap in the market for concerts of a certain size basically um, that can be held without worries to the pitch cutting up now, Leinster don't own the RDS. Leinster are tenants of the RDS, but like Springsteen's playing mm-hmm. the RDS in May. Um, that's on a grass pitch. Um, the National, and I assume some other bands, presumably, played Donnybrook not that long ago. Um, that's, And then, you know, Ed Sheeran played Thoman Park, which was a massive... <laughs> story for a different reason nothing to do with the grass the fact that a monster were temporarily evicted from their, <laughs> from their own stadium um, so rugby stadiums around the country are hosting these these events seemingly independent of whether it's a plastic pitch or a grass pitch you know we've seen instances of both so I guess that's not going to hold an awful lot of sway for the people that are dead set against it and I can sh- I can understand why. Sure, for grass pitches, can you not just put like slats down on it? Well, that yeah, yeah that yeah. you know that's what you see anytime you do go to one of these concerts yeah. in a sports stadium. You know, you, but and that's what I'm saying. You know, like while yes, Leinster don't own the RDS. Like I don't know how many nights Springsteen's playing, but like it's in early May, so the, it will not be. Assuming that Leinster hosts semi-finals and finals at the RDS, it will not be after the games of rugby are finished for the year. Mm. You know, as we say, Leinster don't own the RDS, so they don't have the same amount of control over these things. But I think Adam, like the point that you make about the players, is important because it's we've seen players, especially in England, I suppose. Um, be quite vocal opponents of some of the surfaces that they play on um, whether that be in terms of the abrasions um, that you get on your that you can get on your knees from making tackles so on and so forth 
and then the less, I suppose, less, you know, the studies that have been done into longer-term injuries and stuff, I don't think are, have been particularly conclusive yet. So that's more of an unknown and probably more of a long-term thing. So there's an awful lot to consider. I, I do think the services are getting an awful lot better. You know, you like they guys are. in Glasgow and stuff would say that that's a very, very good example of one. So mm. this, I think, if we put aside the sort of traditionalist view of rugby is played on grass, right? Because it's going to happen. So once you accept that it's going to happen, then it's a matter of what quality of surface you get put in and how much that costs and therefore how much or how long it takes to start paying for itself because mm. it's an expensive undertaking. Mm-hmm. I did find it ironic that Ulster have advertised on Twitter for a senior physiotherapist today just after the news that they're going to get a plastic pitch in, which generally are slightly more unforgivable and therefore lead to a few more injuries. <laughs> they've, they've planned it out in their heads. Um, <laughs> just what you're saying, Johnny, there about like more high-profile players in, in England do oppose it. Because um, I saw this in your piece too, Harlequins, Joe Marler, he he actually had banned 4G pitches on his Twitter account yeah. in September 2021. I personally just imagine it would be like, first of all, yes, it's rock hard. Um, you have to wear different boots, I'm pretty sure as well. And like, I just imagine it would be like carpet burn <laughs> for the amount of, of tackles they have to do. But yeah, as you say, it's 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 investing, it's investing the right the right type. But it'll be interesting. Do you think it will happen this year then? Because of the, the length of the World Cup and the... Yeah, I mean, it, it makes the most sense for it to happen now. It's just, my understanding of it is it's just a question of um, getting the thing paid for. And, you know, tomorrow is March. Um, so there's also the issue of sort of, you know, putting the tender out contracts, finding out who's going to do it. All of these things, you know, you, you are up against the clock to get this started. As we said, Ulster's last home game should be in about two months' time. So um, it's something that needs to be acted upon fairly quickly um, but yeah I think it is going to be because it's a huge change like just because you know we see a lot of these now around the league and Ulster players will be far more used to playing on them it is a huge fundamental change to a stadium that has really been Unaltered, I suppose, for about 10 years. And before that, I've been unaltered for a very long time. Um, and it's going to be fascinating to watch how it unfolds, whether it be at the start of the next season or whether it be further down the line. And it's going to be fascinating to hear, probably not in the moment, but afterwards, um, what players feel having played on it for a while. Because um, obviously there'll be a party line to be towed, but... Um, I don't know. I, I can't imagine it's that pleasant, to be honest. Like, yeah. you know, having fallen down and enough of them playing five aside, um, I can't imagine playing rugby would be uh, something that would be relished. Now, I suppose, to be fair, the surface that I'll still get a Kingspan will be better than anything that 
I'd be paying three pound to play five side on, but the... yeah, true. It'll be interesting can, to see. It. Go ahead. Alan. Can we all agree that the worst part of artificial pitches are those wee plastic pallets that get horrendous. in your shoes? Oh, get stuck in your horrendous. and all over your car, and you're finding them like six months later. Oh yeah, you, you walk home, you take your shoes off, and all of a sudden they're all over your house as well. Like, but it's very annoying perfect. when you are running because you do notice them. But anyway, um, what could my be wife here? did go through a phase, and actually one of my friends' wives as well, just ensuring that astroturf boots couldn't come into the house. So. Oh, they're bad for the Hoover too. Like yeah, horrendous. Um, we'll be here this time next year talking about you know maybe there'll be some big controversy whenever if if and whenever the, the artificial pitch does come in how players get on um, whether you view the 4G pitch possibilities as negative or positive I'm sure many Ulster fans will definitely be veering towards negative when it comes to the rumours and need to stress uns, unsubstantiated rumours that Toulouse are interested in Ulster skipper Ian Henderson having turned 31 years old last week happy belated birthday Ian if you're listening <laughs> the two time British and Irish Lion is in the final months of his IRFU-funded central contract, and not for the first time, we are well clear of Christmas with no word of a new deal. Adam, how damaging is it to Ulster if Ian Henderson goes? Well, I think Johnny wrote this in his column today, like it would be a disaster. Like He's your captain. He's one of the players in your pack at the moment who will give you consistent go-forward ball. He's your experienced guy in that pack alongside Dwayne Vermeulen. Uh, Alan O'Connor, I suppose, has plenty of experience alongside him in, in the second row now. But he, he really is the heartbeat of the team. And in a season where a lot of things have gone wrong for Ulster and you're looking at the Welsh regions and the exodus of players there and the English teams and the exodus of players there. Everyone just seems to be flooding to France at the moment. The Irish teams are the only ones so far who have really kind of resisted those lures and you wish that Ulster weren't going to be the ones to suffer. You wouldn't blame Henderson if he left. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably one of the first things that should be mentioned. You know, he's given what is it now, 13 years of service to the senior team. He made his debut whenever he was 18, didn't he? 19? I think he made his debut in 2011, I think. So 12, so 12, years. 12 years. So he's given 12 years of service. He's played for them in, in all the big games. The the silverware just hasn't come, but you know he's got a young family. He deserves to make his money. And whether or not that's what he's motivated by, I I would imagine not. From talking to him, you would say he's not a man who is after chasing the money. But for the career he's had, he deserves to be paid for it. So if he wanted to go, I don't think anybody could have any complaints. And we know rightly that Toulouse will offer more money than the RFU can. So there's no question where he would be better served if he wanted paid. But the loyalty that he has for Ulster and for Ireland and wanting to go to the World Cup and wanting to play for his country and his province, I think is unmatched. So personally, I don't see it happening, but certainly if it did happen, you're looking at a massive talent drain in that second row for Ulster. Like he is the heartbeat of that team right now. He said before, and you did have this in your piece as well, Johnny, that he's not closed off to playing abroad. And I know you're saying you couldn't blame him, Adam. Do you think it would be a good career move, Johnny? You know, sometimes people say, like, yes, there's more money, but sometimes you're remembered more for loyalty and, like, you can maybe be forgotten very quickly if you do move on from your from your home province and things like that. Would, you, would it be a good career move, do you think? Um, 
I think winning silverware with Ulster as the captain would outweigh anything that he would do um, playing in the top 14. But obviously that, there's no guarantee that yeah. that's going to happen. Like how many Ulster captains have we had since, uh, well, since Justin Harrison in 2006? Um, I guess he still has, he'll still always have that legacy, but I think that's what I'm sort of trying to say is, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But one of the things I think to consider is the fact that, you know, he's 31 now, so he'll be 31 at this World Cup. So 35 at the next World Cup. He's not going to go to another World Cup, you wouldn't think. Are you saying you don't think he'll go to the 2027 World Cup? Or you think he's not... He'll, ha- he'll not have one after 2027? No, I don't think he'll go to the 2027 World Cup. Really? 35-year-old, second row. A lot of miles. Like, mm. what would that be? 2027. So he would have been playing for Ireland for 15 years. You don't get an awful lot of 15-year test careers. This is his, no. third, this is his third World yeah, Cup night. exactly. So he'll have had three cracks at the World Cup. In three weeks' time, we could be talking about him having one two Grand Slams along with two other um, Six Nations titles. Um, Two Lions tours under his belt. So what's left for him to do really in Irish rugby? Win with Ulster and get 100 caps. What I'm really saying is, and we have this conversation every year when we talk about this kind of thing, I always find it... um, really curious that more players don't go. Yeah. And I guess a lot of that is to do with home comforts. A lot of that is to do with being really well looked after. Like, um... Habit's a hard thing to break too. Yeah, and like families are settled, so on and so forth. Um, I do wonder how much the Johnny Sexton factor comes in as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that could be part of it too. Um, Simon Zebo probably had a better time, uh than Sexton did but you know we haven't seen a lot of Irish players leave but like as I said it's fascinating to me that we haven't had a high profile Ulster player leave mm-hmm. in near 15 years since you go back to 2008 with Tommy Bow, Neil Best and Roger Wilson mm-hmm. um, every other province has had somebody go um, and it just hasn't happened to Ulster and that to me is some something of a mystery. I'm not. Yeah. Sa- I'm not saying that I think Handy will go. I'm not really even saying that I think Handy should go. But to give some context, right? So for the Italy week last week, I did a feature with Brian Young, who finished his career in Italy. Now, different scenario in the sense that he wasn't offered an Ulster contract. He, um, Callum Black was coming in, so he wasn't getting a deal. But he, you know, he went away to Italy and. It ended in just four and a half months because of injury. But like, even still talking to him now, what's that, 11, 12 years later, he really valued the the life experience of going and living somewhere else mm-hmm. and um, just experiencing a different culture. But this is probably just me projecting in that <laughs> if I was good enough at something that somebody would pay me to go and do it in Italy or France yeah. or wherever, um, then I would. But... Obviously, rugby players are different because, as we say, so few of them have done that for when given the choice of staying with Ulster or going. 
Must be stressed that this is all wild speculation. And he, again, we could be sitting here this time next year talking about the artificial pitches. <laughs> well, this is still the captain. Thing, because <laughs> it seems to mostly emanate from a Twitter post on a, like a Toulouse fan account that said he was 29 and had 60 caps. <laughs> Neither of those things are true. Um, but were true when his contract was last up for renewal two years ago. Um but obviously Toulouse are in the market for a second row and as I said in the column, because of those reasons that we've discussed, you can see why French teams who have become very sceptical about um, Irish players because going all the way back to uh, Brian O'Driscoll and Biarritz, there is an impression that they get that Irish players aren't going to go and that they tend to just use interest from France to get better terms out of the IRFU. But you can see why they might look at Henderson and think after a World Cup, um, when he's of an age, when he's probably not going to make another World Cup. You know, you can see why people would think that's a player that we could maybe tempt away. And essentially, the, the longer we go, like Henderson signed his last contract on the 24th of February. Um, his contract before that was signed in March. So we are in that time when we should be seeing yeah. news of a contract. And the longer it goes without us seeing news of a contract, the more of a story it becomes. You know, we saw, was it last week, Peter O'Mahony, um, who was in the same boat as Henderson in that his contract was going to be up in the summer of, well, sorry, this summer. And he signed an extension um, to 2024, only one year. But, you know, we've seen a good lot of central contract news coming out already this season and Henderson is probably the highest profile player um, probably the highest profile player in Ireland it's fair to say without news of a contract for next year Jacob Stockdale's another one of course well maybe he'll maybe listen to this and be like you know what you're right I should go <laughs> <laughs> I think in my defence before anyone accuses me of chasing Ulster's best player out if there is one player in the Ulster squad that I would be very, very shocked. Has any interest in anything that we have to say? It's in him. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a smart enough man without having to listen to us bluffers. <laughs> put, it, put it this way. If th this would be his time to cash in. Like, yeah. after the World Cup, as Johnny says, maybe his last World Cup. I think he could go to 2027, but given the doubt that there would be over the potential of him going to the 2027 World Cup this is the one and even if he did think he could go you know go for a couple of years and then come back mm -hmm. so this is probably the one where you are looking to cash in do I think it will happen no well hopefully he, sorry. go on ahead Johnny he did say like last week or two weeks ago that this is the Ireland environment that he's enjoyed the most in his entire career Um. so I mean, it would be a bit of a departure then to be like, this is the most fun I'm having in my entire rugby mm. career, but I'm going to go, but I don't know. Well, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, um, sooner rather than later, we hear some sort of contractual <laughs> news and Johnny, you'll definitely have all that news before any of us. Um, Ulster play Cardiff in Wales this Saturday with kickoff at 7.35pm and Ireland play Scotland next week, Sunday at 3pm, as I was saying before. And you can catch up with all the news views and analysis from both Adam and Johnny about that in the Belfast Telegraph newspaper and of course online at belfasttelegraph.co.uk and we are also on Twitter at Inside Ulster BT if anyone wants to 
Um, tweet us nice things or abuse. We don't really mind. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. Bye.